So Jeff has asked me to preach on the theme which comes up in your summer series of sermons focusing on the fruit of the Spirit that we find described in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, the effect of God's presence in our lives by His Spirit. So let me take you back. Jesus lives on earth, and Jesus dies. Jesus goes away, and His disciples are really sad that Jesus is going away. But Jesus promises to His followers, to His disciples, that He's not going away. They won't see Him in flesh and blood They won't see him with their eyes anymore or hear him with their ears anymore in exactly the same way, but he will be with them. He will come again to them by his Spirit. He will not leave them. In fact, he will come and live inside them by his Spirit, not only as individuals, but as a community together. He will come and be with them. And when this happens, not only does he bring comfort to their lives, he's there, he's with us, but he promises to transform our lives as well. His presence, as it was when He lived here on earth, will be a transformative present. So that our theme verses in Paul's letter to the Galatians in the fifth chapter speak explicitly about this transformative power of the presence of Jesus by His Spirit in our lives and describes it as fruit. He will bear fruit in our lives, a change in our character. In fact, the character of Jesus flowing into our lives and through our lives, into our community, and through our community out into the world around about us. And this happens by His presence through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, described in the Holy Scripture, are synonymous with each other. They all overlap and are interchangeable with each other. And that fruit is described in Galatians 5 The character of Jesus is described in Galatians 5 as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And this morning, as you may well have guessed, we come to the second of these characteristics. We're focusing on the fruit of the Spirit that is joy, the fruit of the Spirit that is joy, the result of the Spirit's presence, the result of the risen Christ, by His Spirit within our lives, is joy. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about joy, and we just heard the children challenge to think about joy, but I think of a number of stories, events that have occurred to me in my life in the last uh, couple of years. I think of a graduation that I went to, in fact, just a few weeks ago at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. This is the District of Columbia's community college. It's become a university, and it largely services folks who've grown up in the inner city. So in this graduation from law school, uh, the people who graduated are going to be the first attorneys in their family all the way through. The first attorneys in their family, if they pass the bar, they will be the first attorneys in their family. And most of them, perhaps some of them are in the same category, most of them are actually the first graduates at all in their families. And so the future for these particular people and for their families is going to be quite different from anything that they have ever experienced before. You may be able to identify with this. Quite different from anything they've ever experienced before. And that place, that graduation hall, was explosive. It was filled with joy. Spontaneous shouts and placards everywhere, people beaming smiles. Reminded me of a Presbyterian church. 
well, maybe not so much. Most Presbyterian churches slightly different from that, but, but anyway, the place was just in an uproar as these young people crossed over. They knelt down, they got their hood, and they graduated. Their pure joy, pure joy at the accomplishments, uh, and they were clear accomplishments, but at the hopes embodied with the future there from family, from friends, and each other. I mean, they'd been through the war together, and they were cheering on each other. And it was just spontaneous, pure joy. Even though it lasted two and a half hours, it was still <laughs> spontaneous, pure joy. Or a couple of summers ago, I think of a, a wedding that my wife and I went to on the beach. This was actually at Myrtle Beach. It was a wedding on the beach, and they'd set up chairs, and they'd little arch there for this wedding on the beach. Quite a business down in Myrtle Beach, these weddings on the beach. And uh, we knew the bride. She was a colleague of my wife, but we did not know the groom. We'd never seen him or met him before. And the bride kept the groom waiting. So he had come down. He was standing there in front of us on these seats at the beach. And she kept him waiting. He made his entrance. He was standing there for ages and ages. And if it was me, I'd probably grow anxious or I'd grow upset. Something's gone wrong here, and I'd probably be twiddling my thumbs and not feeling particularly good. But he was growing more and more excited. He'd been standing by himself. He's growing more and more excited. And when his bride finally appeared, I mean, he was jumping around. And I've never seen such joy at a wedding. Once again, they're usually in Presbyterian churches. They're not quite so spontaneous as this. But he couldn't stop moving, and he couldn't stop smiling. It was as if he'd just won the lottery. And the joy in him was infectious. We all felt it. It was just this communal sense of joy emanating from this one person for whom, in his mind, something wonderful, miraculous. Uh, they were both in their late 30s or their early 40s. Something wonderful and miraculous was happening in his life pure joy overflowing from him. And then another situation which is quite different from these two that I've just described. This particular experience of pure joy took place when I was vis visiting a friend who was in hospice, and he was about to die. He was going to be dead within the next week or two after my visit, and he was on the way for that. We were bosom buddies. We were fellow ministers. And there were some tears in the room. There's no question about that. But while death was nearby, it was at the door, there was also a lot of laughter in the room, in part because of an abiding sense of gratitude. Think of the children's story, abiding sense of gratitude that God had brought our lives together. We're so grateful that God had brought our lives together. And we had reflected on times of laughter together. But, but also, there was joy in the room because we both had a sense that this was not the end. I mean, it just wasn't the end. It was a change, and there was going to be a loss, no question about that, and we were grieving because of that. But this was not the end. There was an abiding sense of hope that God was still in charge, even when His life was fading away on this earth, and that there would be more to come. In fact, there was joy and gladness. This was the day the Lord had made. There was joy and gladness in the room at that time. And that combination that we heard of earlier with the children, that combination appears in the Bible over a hundred times, the combination of joy and gladness. And the two of them are intimately related. One of the occasions in which joy and gladness appears 
is at the beginning of the gospel according to St. Luke in the first chapter before the story of Jesus. You may remember there's a story about the birth of John the Baptist, and his father Zechariah is in the temple. He's a, a priest, and an angel, the angel Gabriel, comes to him and tells him about the fact that he and his wife are going to have a son, and it seems to be impossible uh, for them to have a son. And the angel Gabriel says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And words like these, joy, gladness, joyful, rejoice, rejoicing, are not uncommon in the Scripture. In fact, they appear over 400 times in the Scripture. I mean, this is not just an occasional thing which comes up now and again, but from the beginning to the end, joy, joyful, rejoice, rejoicing. These words appear again and again and again, where we find not only stories like the story of Zechariah, in which people are promised joy, he was promised joy, and then he was to experience joy. We find not only these things, but we also find people who are actually commanded to be joyful. They are commanded to rejoice. In fact, sometimes both of them rejoice, be joyful, and be glad. And this is not insignificant, the command to rejoice, the command to be joyful. It is not insignificant. If joy needs to be commanded, and it's commanded over a half dozen times in the pages of Scripture, if joy needs to be commanded, then joy cannot just be a feeling, can it, if it's commanded? I mean, it is a feeling, we know that, but it can't just be a feeling. There must be something more going on, because you can't command somebody to feel a certain way. I mean, you feel what you feel, and if you're commanded to do it, you're like me, in all likelihood, you'll do the opposite at that moment. I mean, there's something that goes on there, but this is commanded for us. Rejoice! Be joyful in the Lord! again and again and again. Nor is this joy automatic if it has to be commanded. Even when the Spirit is there, it cannot just be automatic, as if when the Spirit is there, whoa, all of a sudden I'm going to be joyful. So these thoughts lead me to ask a couple of questions. The first is this. If joy is not automatic, then how in the world does God's Spirit go about unleashing joy in my life? If joy is a fruit of the Spirit, how does the Spirit of God go about unleashing joy within my life? And the second thing that comes to my mind when I think about this command to be joyful is this. What kinds of things do produce joy? What kinds of things do produce joy that the Spirit might deliberately place in my life so that then the end result is joy. So yes, be joyful, but what are the things which lead up to that? Because the Spirit often uses means in order to get to a certain end. So I did a quick study of the Bible. It's very easy with a computer. You can do that, and some of the results of that computer search are on the insert in your bulletin that I hope you will take away with you afterwards on joy and rejoicing and and being joyful and so forth. And when I looked at, at joy and at the sources of joy in the pages of Scripture, I found three things which were often the sources of joy. Not entirely, there's more to it than that, but at least three things which tend to produce joy in people's lives. Joy erupts 
in people's lives, when they see something that is beautiful or something that is excellent, and often it takes them by surprise. Something beautiful or excellent, and you go, wow. And there's pure joy there at that particular moment. So I come into the hills and the mountains, and I go, wow. There's joy at what I see with my eyes there. Or second, people become joyful when their future is secure. And we sang about that earlier, actually. When our future is secure, we call this hope. When there's a hope in our lives, which is not just ephemeral and passing, but is somehow secure, it's strong, it's based on some fundamental fact, then we're joyful. We find the pressure going down, and we can be joyful. And then third, and perhaps most frequently, joy erupts in people's lives in the pages of Scripture when there are relationships within their lives that are powerful and significant and loving. Joy comes in particular from relationships. And each of those had a part to play in those three scenarios of joy that I painted earlier, the graduation, the wedding, and the bedside scene at hospice. Something beautiful was happening even in the face of death. Something beautiful was happening at the wedding. Something excellent was happening in the graduation. A new door was opening to the future in each of those. Though a door may seem to be closing, another door was opening. So there was real hope there. And there were relationships with individuals and family members that were powerful and that were significant and loving. And when it comes to biblical joy, when it comes to Christian joy in particular, each of these three come into play, especially when they're tied into the character and the presence and the action of God within our lives. So think of God and the beauty of God, the excellence inherent in God's character. Or think about the hope that comes when we know that our future is not tied up just in what I want and what I think the future will be, but in a God who is before me and behind me and is ahead of me and secures that future for us. Right now, we know that. We have that deep assurance and tied in above everything else to the fact that God wants to be in relationship with us. Not just that we want to be in relationship with God, but that God wants to be in relationship with us and wants to establish a relationship with us that lasts forever. And that's what eternal life is, says Jesus. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, Eternal life is this, to know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a relationship that begins now. And just as with my friend in hospice, it does not end. When we die, it goes on forever. But don't expect it to go on forever if it doesn't begin now. It is to begin now and to be real now. And God is passionate about bringing this relationship into our lives. So passionate, in fact, that he's willing to move both heaven and hell to make it happen and to restore it when it's broken and to establish it on a firm foundation. So I'd like us to see how these three elements play out in different stories in the Bible. I don't know what stories in the Bible you think of when you think of joy and rejoicing, my mind immediately goes back to the Christmas story. I've hinted at that with Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist. But there is no other story in the pages of Scripture which is filled with more joy all over the place than, than the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. So here we are in June, and we're going back to Christmas just for a moment or two. And 
want to remind you of the joy that Mary experienced when she was told by the angel that she was about to have a baby. So what does she do when she receives this announcement? She goes away. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth, who is now pregnant with the baby, promised to Zechariah, her husband, who will grow up to become John the Baptist. And when Mary arrives and tells the story about the angel visiting her, do you remember this? Elizabeth is there, and she hears the story, and John the Baptist, little baby, leaps with joy in her womb. That's what the Scripture says at that point. He leaps with joy in her womb. And then Mary begins to share a song with Elizabeth, and we call that song the Magnificat, in which her heart overflows with love for God, that God has noticed her and lifted her up. And she has joy in her heart because of this enormous joy. So she sings, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then when the angel comes to the shepherds, and all the angels come to the shepherds, they bring good news of great joy, great joy. And then when the wise men arrive in Bethlehem and the star stops at the right place, the Scripture tells us that they were overwhelmed with joy. They were overwhelmed with joy. All over the place in the story of the birth of Jesus because of what God is doing, the beauty and the perfection of what God is doing, the action that God is taking because of the new future and the new hope that comes into being because the Messiah is here. People were at a dead end. And now Jesus opens up the future, the birth of this baby, opens up a future that was inconceivable before. And joy, because God is showing his love, his passion for relationship. God doesn't wait for us, but God enters our world, enters our universe to connect with us, to establish a relationship with us. He notices us, calls us into his service, will do anything, become a powerless baby for us since God will do this for us so that we can never be separated from the love of God again. What is the fruit of the knowledge of that relationship? Well, it is joy all over the place on a human level and in a divine level. God is filled with joy at all that is going on there as well. And both heaven and earth come into view in the parables that Jesus teaches in the gospel according to St. Luke that we read. So a sheep is lost. Remember the story, and a shepherd is in pain. He's got 100 sheep, and one is lost. 99 are safe, but there is this one that's lost, and can't be, can't be at peace, can't be at rest until that sheep is found. And when that sheep is found in that relationship with this sheep who may appear to be just like a nameless sheep, but no, this relationship is reestablished, the shepherd rejoices and It overflows, can't help but share it with others. Or the woman who loses a coin. She's got 10 coins. Maybe this is all of her retirement. This one-tenth has just gone away. The stock market has crashed and it's down one-tenth. And and she goes and she looks and she's desperate till she finds it. When she finds it, she has to go and tell somebody. It overflows, it bubbles up. She's got to tell somebody that she's found it. She cannot keep the news to herself. And Jesus says the same is true in our world as well. And in particular, in the parable, this is about God's joy in us. When God finds us, heaven is filled with joy, more joy 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 who are righteous. God himself overflows with joy. All of this brings me back to the work of the Holy Spirit and to joy as the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit and to this commandment which we find uh, in many places but especially in Paul's letter to the Philippians in which he says rejoice. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord, in your relationship with the Lord and in what God has done for you. Rejoice. It's a command. How are we to do it? How does the Spirit carry out this work to bring this fruit to bear in our lives? Well, by doing actually what we've just done and what I hope you might do with the insert in your bulletin after this service is over, think about who God is. Think. Use your minds to think about who God is and what God has done for you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Draws us back to who God is in a world which wants to ignore God and what God has done for us. We see this picture repeatedly in the Psalms, and one section of that insert is, is dedicated to the Psalms. So what do we learn about what God has done for us in the Psalms? Oh, it's there all over the place in the Psalms. God loves us with a love that is not fickle, but is steadfast. I will exult and rejoice in your steadfast love. God wants to give to us his presence, his holy presence. You bestow on your servant blessings forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. God wants to use his strength for us. In your strength, the king rejoices, and in your help, how greatly he exalts. God wants to Hold our future in the palms of his hand. May we shout for joy over your victory, which you share with us. God shelters us in his presence and with his power. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing ever for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the world with equity and you guide the nations of the earth. And when we go wrong, well, our confession this morning, our prayer of confession was straight from Psalm 51, where David is penitent over his sin, committing adultery with Bathsheba. And he prays this, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. When you put away my sin, when you bear it, as Jeff said earlier, you allow me to be set free and in that freedom of relationship to find joy. This story fills the Psalms, who God is. Go back to the Scripture. The Scripture inspired by the Spirit is what the Spirit draws us back to again and again. And when the Spirit is at work and these things happen and the love of God for us is made known to us, again and becomes real for us. What's the consequence of that? Well, that brief line I described from the Acts of the Apostles, and you see it repeatedly when the gospel is proclaimed in the early days of the church. When the gospel was proclaimed in Samaria and they embraced the Messiah, there was great joy in that city. They'd come in contact with the love of God that nothing could separate them from. Rejoice always. 
says the Apostle Paul. It's a command. When the command is given, of course, we're to brace ourselves and to be as joyful as we can, but that joy erupts when our minds go back to who God is and what God has done for us, the surpassing excellence and beauty of God in everything that God has done for us. He longs for us to know those things, the future that God holds in the palm of his hands, which he offers to us, and that relationship with him that nothing can sever, no matter what. So there's that wedding, and this groom is waiting for his bride, and he's bouncing up and down, and he just can't wait for the moment when he's going to be married there. And God says to us, I want to marry you. That's the relationship I want to enter into. I want you to be in that picture with me. And he invites us to do precisely that. And when the Spirit is at work, we say, oh, yes. Thanks be to God.